Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Good morning. Welcome to Talkback Gardening, the first Saturday of August, looking out at a very clear sky here in Collinswood. Good morning, John Lamb. Good morning, Deb. Good morning, gardeners. And a special good morning to those that are decided they're going to do something about climate change because climate change is very much to the fore at the moment. Many people, I think, were quite frightened, at least horrified, with what happened in the United States and Europe as a result of the extreme weather. The question is, are we next? We're about to have summer. What will our summer be like? Will it be extreme and horrific and frightening? I hope not. So do I. But it's the first Saturday of the month which means we talk to a climatologist, South Australia's consulting climatologist, Darren Ray. He'll be here shortly, and he'll be talking, and he has his three-months weather outlook. And Darren is going to give us his normal three-months weather outlook for home gardeners, most important as we move into that uh, from winter into spring. But he will also comment on the likelihood of a severe summer here in South Australia and Take particular note as to maybe is there a difference between what's happening in the northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere? That doesn't mean to say it's not going to be hot, but more from Darren shortly, because we're also going to take a look at what can we could do right now in our gardens to mitigate the effect? If we're going to have hot weather, we want us to be able to stay in the garden and not have our tomatoes ruined by heat waves. Tim Marshall is one of our top organic gardeners. He'll join the program following Darren and we'll continue our discussion on climate change. Not to be frightened, but we need to be able to adapt. So preparing our home gardens around uh, climate change and what lies ahead with Tim Marshall. Looking forward to that as well. I have two new August ABC Gardening Australia magazines to give away a little bit later in the program. They are celebrating citrus with sweet and tangy varieties to make your garden zing and the front garden cover looks very enticing with lemons and oranges on it. And John will, of course, answer your general talkback gardening questions as well on 1300 222 891. If you'd like to jump in the queue, then why not do so now? And we value your comments as well on the text line 0467 922 891 is the number. Nothing like a day or two of blue skies and sunshine to make people smile about uh, what lies ahead in terms of weather. But uh, many people have also decided that something needs to happen about climate change. What's happened in the United States and Europe in terms of their extreme weather is of extreme concern to many people. Will the same kind of conditions occur here in, in South Australia or in Australia itself? We'll talk about that very shortly because we say good morning to our climatologist, Darren Ray. G'day John, g'day Deb and to uh, all the listeners out there this morning. I'd like you to comment on the climate change situation, but before we do so, I think it's very important that we also talk to you about our three-month weather outlook. Uh, the weather models have been suggesting for quite some time that uh, El Nino is going to form in the Pacific with its warmer and drier weather, and uh, the, in the Indian Ocean on the other side, there's a, uh, an Indian Ocean diapole turning positive, which could also give us warmer and drier conditions. Hasn't quite happened yet. The Bureau still say uh, uh, there's an alert for an El Nino. What does Darren Ray say? 
Yeah, yeah, John, the um, yeah, the situation's interesting. The I mean, there's a couple of international agencies of the US and the uh, World Meteorological Organization have come out and declared El Nino already. The Bureau uses a fairly high bar, so hasn't quite got there. But um, the last couple of weeks, um, it's ba we've basically seen conditions. Um, there's been a whole lot of water lurking underneath the surface. Um, in the, along the equator in the Pacific, and that's been making its way up to the surface over the last couple of weeks. So we're seeing the central Pacific warming up pretty strongly, and also seeing, seeing the last couple of weeks, seeing that sort of difference in ocean temperatures across the northern Indian Ocean establishing itself into that positive Indian Ocean dipole influence, so that hot and dry influence for Australia and particularly South Australia. So the last couple of weeks, we've really seen signals emerging, and I really think do think we're in the in the, the early stages of of both that um, of of that anticipated El Nino event and the um, the positive Indian dipole pattern, and you're suggesting that we are going to get an El Nino. Oh, it's well, <laughs> it'd be um, it'd be something very wrong with all the models um, <laughs> if um, if it didn't didn't eventuate at this stage. Um, yeah, you know, and yeah, the uh, I mean the the observations in the Pacific are quite clearly showing this warm water. Um, that was a couple hundred metres down is actually now moving up towards the surface, and um, that really is the uh, you know really the early the first signs of the, uh, the the event starting up. Well, it looks like it's inevitable. An El Nino, a positive IOD, and both those things come together to give us a warmer summer. Would you care to? Start by giving us our three-month weather outlook, Darren, in terms of, in particular, rainfall and temperatures. So if we start, here it is, it's August, blue skies at the moment, but they'll change quickly. Uh, we went through uh, July and didn't actually get our average rainfall. The temperatures were a little bit warmer, but uh, what do you see for August? Yeah, so the basically what we're seeing over the last month or so is the weather patterns reshaping into what you would very much expect for um, for El Nino conditions. So, um, basically, been saying for a while that as we went through winter, we would would see things move towards that sort of um, hotter, drier side of things. Um, and one of the, one of the things is the uh, the ridge of high pressure over over southern Australia tends to be stronger. Um, stronger than average, and that's very much been the case um, in July. And so, um, yeah, so that's it's really another expression. You know, we really are seeing the the atmospheric circulation, the weather patterns, really responding to what's going on um, along the Pacific and the and and along the equator, and uh, reshaping themselves into what's more like a, a typical El Nino pattern. In terms of rainfall, then, when's our best bet? Will we have any rain? Or well, obviously, we're going to have some rain, and obviously, we're going to get lots and lots of little showers. Uh, but when might we get some significant rains through August? Uh, so, yeah, basically, the um, there's not a lot going on through the next... We've had this you know, system in the last day or two, um, but there's not really not much showing up until um, till sort of just after mid-months, around about the 16th, 16th, 17th. Um, there is a um, a little bit of a, a last taste of, of winter, I think, um, coming then, and uh, and then the second half of the month, particularly the um, the last week, looks looks most active in terms of rainfall. But overall, you know, there's there's not a lot of sort of rain anticipated and. I expect we'd be uh, we'll end up below average again, and probably around about forty millimetres or so for Adelaide. All right, and temperatures for uh, for August? Um, so it looks looks pretty pleasant up through the next through the next uh, 
uh, you know, next sort of ten days or so out to mid month. Um, a little bit, a little bit milder in that uh, in that last week, a little bit colder in that last week of the month. Um, so yeah, there's there's a little bit of a sort of cold front, as I mentioned, mid mid month. So it's just a little burst of of colder conditions there, a little sort of slight last taste of winter, and then um, uh, and then yeah, a little bit on off through the, through that sort of remainder of the second half of the month. All right, so there's nothing atypical. We're not likely to get a, a sudden burst of hot weather during August. There's, I mean, the, the next this next week or so looks pretty um, would be re- relatively warm. So we, I think we will see some more temperatures in the in the twenties. Okay. So high teens and 20s over, through this next sort of week or so. All right. Well, um, low 20s yeah. is okay. So will it be above average or average or below average, do you think, across the month, Darren? Uh, um, probably a little bit above average overall, slightly. Yeah. Okay. Then we move into September, particularly early September. Everybody, uh, not everybody, but lots of gardeners and lots of rural people in particular, uh, very focused on the first couple of weeks in September. Uh, what's the likelihood of a wet show or a dry show? And take us through yeah. September. Yeah, the big question. Um, so the tropical activity does look like it, it's a sort of touched on the, um, we'll kick off in that last week of the month, and it looks like it'll keep going through into First half of September, um, so it does look like there's a bit of bit of increased likelihood of rainfall around that time. Just the timing, obviously, this far ahead is is, is a bit tricky, um, but it does look like that sort of first half of September is the is the better chance for rainfall than the second half. Right. Okay. So and, and, and t- overall, it's uh, and uh, overall, it's looking um, it will be looking drier and warmer. So basically. The pattern of increasing influence coming in from the Indian Ocean and the, and the uh, El Nino event as we go through um, go through the next few months. So, just to summarise, you think temperatures will likely be above average across the month for September, but rain below average, Darren? Yeah, yeah, exactly, Deb. Um, and 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 once and October, November look particularly the case. So. Basically, um, you know, digging into the modelling, it does look like, in terms of temperatures, we're look, it's looking like we'll probably run four to five weeks ahead of last year. So, you know, we'll see things warm up um, quite a bit more, quite a bit earlier than we uh, than we saw last year. And just on that, yeah. can yeah. I just say, Mickey has just sent through a text saying, the question I have is, are we in for an early spring? In the western suburbs of, of Grange, along coastal areas, I'm seeing a lot of pollen and nectar coming into my beehives. Also, we'll be treating stone fruit with copper for curl leaf, um, <laughs> affecting my bees. So <laughs> certainly Mickey's seeing it. And you're saying we, we probably are in for an early spring, Darren. Yeah, those temperatures, as I mentioned, look like they're yeah, at least four, maybe five, even six weeks ahead of last year. So, um, and uh, yeah, October, November look particularly warm. November in particular looks looks very warm. So we, we will see things. So uh, and the temperatures in November look like what we saw in sort of um, possibly sort of January um, last year. That sort of that sort of scale of difference. People will be watching out for that sudden little burst where, okay, we're getting average temperatures for, uh, uh, say, September, uh, around about uh, uh, 18 or 19, when they get into the 20s and uh, suddenly burst into the high 20s. Is that likelihood? Yeah, that looks like, looks like mid-September looks like a very, very, very strong turning point um, in the uh, the modelling. So... Um, and looking at the numbers of sort of you know days over thirty, that sort of thing start creeping in pretty 
pretty quickly from um, from late September onwards. Sorry, mid September onwards. All right. So a warmer, earlier spring, come summer, and the big question after so much. Uh, Problem, the big problems in, in the United States and, and uh, Europe, are we likely to receive those kind of conditions or are we likely to receive extreme heat during this summer? Yes, it certainly looks like the case. Um, I mean, um, El Nino events tend to push temperatures globally up by um, you know, sort of 0.3 or, or more of a degree above the, uh, the background whatever the background temperature is. We've had a few years of, of cooler La Nina conditions which tend to do the opposite. Um, so, yeah, it's um, it's not a great picture of, um, facing that sort of prospect of, um, you know, we've, we've got one, temperatures that are 1.2 degrees above the long-term average and um, you had another sort of 0.3 or 0.4 on that. And um, basically, like, the thing with El Nino events is the, the ocean stores away... Uh, the, um, in normal normal conditions, the um, sunshine gets stored away in the oceans, and so it gets pushed down in the oceans. El Nino events allow that heat to come back up to the surface. So we've got sort of a few years of La Nina events that have seen ocean heat being pushed in, or heat from the atmosphere being pushed into the oceans, and the El Nino has allowed that to come back up to the surface. And so that um, that impacts um, Australia uh, pretty significantly. It's impacted the part of the story of the northern hemisphere. There's also a few other things going on with record ocean temperatures and um, and uh, things changes in the wave patterns in the northern hemisphere which actually don't impact, which are unlikely to impact us in the southern hemisphere. So, so you're um, suggesting that what's happening in the northern hemisphere is quite different. There's a number of elements coming together to cause what uh, the problems that they had, whereas we've got maybe uh, not just a, a single, but the El Nino is probably the dominating uh, feature of our weather for summer. Yeah, and I mean we've also got you know warmer ocean temperatures in the southern hemisphere as well, um, record ocean temperatures in parts of the southern hemisphere. So it's it's, like, it's not a straightforward picture, but um, yeah, really that, um, that that's the main thing with El Nino events is they um, the basic events where the ocean heat that's deeper down the ocean is actually comes back up to the surface and and that that impacts in, in temperatures and um, also changes the uh, the weather patterns and and obviously reduces moisture availability for Australia. And so, um, and the heat in the, the models is, looks pretty significant. Um, you know, we're sort of talking two degrees above average in the models, but, um, you know, whether how much that's underestimated is, is going to be an interesting one to see. So, you know, very clear um, signal of a very warm, uh, very, 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 well, very hot summer, um, and particularly like right at the tail end of the outlook of the modelling is um, February looks very, very hot. Um, the, the rainfall in the models is not super dry, but it's it's certainly on certainly below average um, through particularly November and um, December looks like it might have a little bit of tropical activity come through. Might pick up a little bit of rainfall out of that, but January, February look, look quite dry and hot. Could we go back to 2015 where we had two weeks of extreme weather? It was a heat wave, an extended heat wave. Do you see mm. that there's a likelihood that we'll receive extended heat waves during our summer period? Yeah, it's it certainly would very much on the cards. Um, so, I mean, in general, you do tend to get increased heat wave uh, activity in El Nino years and El Nino summers. So, um, yeah, so very much the case. I mean, the, the, the thing that's, I guess the thing that's the saving grace this year is um, 
we've come off you know a few number of wet years. Well, it's mixed mixed double edged sword. We've come off a couple of couple of, or a few quite wet years, um, and that means there's a there's a bit of soil moisture still around. Um, so the soils when the, when the soils dry out. Um, that's when things really start sort of start becoming baking and we've still got sort of relatively wet soils um, but at the same time we've also got a lot of vegetation so when things dry out there's, um, there's going to be significant fire risk um, which I'd suggest is probably going to be very much the case um, uh, as we go through summer and things do dry out um, there's you know there's going to be very significant fire risk around and, um, and increased uh, risk of heat waves so um, and I guess the thing thing with this is um, you know, it's a little taste of, you know, what um, what could become, what, what's very likely to become normal average conditions in over the next sort of 20, 30 years. These sort of extreme years, um, yeah, they're because of the lags in the climate system, they're going to become the new normal over about 20, 30 year timeframes. Um, that's unfortunately the thing which, um, you know, one of the things which disturbs me about climate change is people don't often get that there, there are these lags in the climate system that um, even if all emissions stop now, we're in for another 20, 30 years of, of increasing temperatures. Um, they're going to mean, mean what we see as extreme now becomes the new normal over that sort of 20, 30 year time frame. Mm. Well, that's been picked up by a texter here saying this is scary to me because it's not an early spring with global warming. It's going to be summer instead of spring. We'll lose spring altogether. Darren Ray is our consulting climatologist joining us with his seasonal outlook for gardeners and other comments in relation to climate change. On the text line here also, um, a specific question. It says it's so dry in our farming areas, they need rain, but it's not happening. Will there be any rain at all in August for our northern grain growers? Yeah, it's um, unfortunately it's not looking not looking great. Um, so I know a lot of you know, Adelaide's Adelaide's not been, done too badly for rainfall. So we're actually we're actually a bit above the average so far this year. But it does look very much like the tap's going to turn off. And and for northern agriculture districts, it's been a um, you know very dry, uh, pretty dry season so far. So um, add the uh, the on the young positive irrigation dipole drier, hotter conditions on top of that. It's not great news. Um, unfortunately, it'd be nice to be be bringing something different, but mm. um, yeah, that's what we're seeing. And now, Danny Amberford Park, and I'm not asking you to do this because we're out of time, Darren, but asks about the Milankovitch cycle, how it impacts gardeners. But we'll leave that for another day. Sorry, Danny, we uh, don't have time. <laughs> On a positive note, Lynn says from Christie's that last spring was too cold for me. Glad to be it won't be as bad this year. We will come back and speak to Darren in just a moment, um, but. Love your text messages on zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one. We'll be speaking to organic expert Tim Marshall in the very near future as well about what we can do in our home gardens right now to prepare for the heat ahead. Talk back gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide. South Australia and Broken Hill. We're talking to Darren Ray, our consulting climatologist, giving his uh, three-month seasonal outlook for gardeners and talking more generally because it's been a big week of climate news, uh, both globally and here in Australia, John. And very shortly, we'll talk to top organic gardener Tim Marshall about what we can do as gardeners right now uh, to reduce and to be able to uh, uh, get through extreme weather conditions. But Darren, before we say goodbye and thank you for today's contributions, you're at the cutting edge uh, uh, as a climatologist. You're working with what's going on. You can see what we're about to receive. Uh, Is there anything that we as gardeners can do? We feel almost powerless. 
pretty wide around and through 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 a lot of the public. I mean, most people are concerned about climate change, and rightly so. The I, I guess I guess one of the messages that can get a little bit lost is uh, the the more strongly and quickly we mitigate, reduce emissions, and get to zero, um, the less we're going to have to adapt to. And um, so anything that people can do, whether they're gardeners or more generally, to to minimise emissions and and actually support action that minimises emissions through through talking to politicians, to get a few friends and go talk to your MP about your concerns. Um, is is a really good thing, um, but you know we can, we've also there's also personal actions we can do. So you know minimising our flying as much as we can, um, you know, reducing your your meat consumption, your meat particularly beef consumption because of methane emissions. So I've you know I've gone back to a, a steak once a month kind of thing, um, and also things like solar panels and um, even you know um, white roofs make a really significant difference to, um, to temperatures in urban settings. Um, so there's there's lots of things people can do. Australia's in a really good position because solar power is getting really, really cheap. Wind, wind power is getting really, really cheap. There's some great, great work by people like Saul Griffiths, which says we could, we could, could, we can do the transition. We've got pretty much everything we need. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's really good. So there is some really good news out there for um, for Australians. Um, but we just really need to get stuck in as absolutely quickly as we can because those lags in the climate system. Um, you know, it's going to take us a, a few decades to transform energy, our, the way we do things in our energy systems, and then we get the lags in the climate system on top of that. Um, so, you know, the quicker we can get in, the, the 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 less bad we can make things. Darren, I think we'll leave it there, but thank you very much for joining us. I'll give a quick summary of your report in just a moment, and we'll catch up with you the first weekend in September. You'll be joining us, I hope. At the Royal Adelaide Show, we'll, we'll be down there anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'll be there. Looking forward to it. Fantastic. Thanks, Darren. We'll see you there. If you'd like to catch up with Darren in the flesh, you can do so at the Royal Adelaide Show. We'll be broadcasting live from the uh, ABC stage in the southern side, just near the entrance there of the Jubilee Pavilion where we are every year. So I hope that you can join us there. This person says, looks like we're going back into a normal hot summer uh, like it was. So it's not climate change. Well, that's not what the science is telling us, I have to say. Um, this person's saying, look, in the Flinders, sometimes we get up to a 50. What can we expect? Uh, hard to be specific about that. But I guess we just all need to gird our loins for a, a, a warm, a very hot summer ahead. I'll just summarise what Darren had to say. He said in terms of August, uh, we're expecting a slightly above average temperatures and below average rainfall. Uh, he set it around 40 millimetres for September. Above average temperatures, below average rain, uh, same again for October. And a very warm November, more like the January weather that we experienced and summer uh, very hot with a potential, of course, for extended heat waves. So that's what we need to think about when we're talking about home gardening, John. Yes, the important thing to take on board is that Darren is saying that what happened in America and Europe is what we're going to have in 30 years' time. That will be our normal weather, which is rather frightening. So what can we do as home gardeners to make sure that we keep on gardening and we're still there in 30 years' time? But what about right now? Call in on 1300 222 891, 1300 991. If you'd like to ask John a general talk back gardening question, we'd love to answer those. We appreciate your text too on 0467 922 891. Just coming to have a look at some of the text messages that you're sending in to us at the moment... 
Paul's saying on the text line, I hope next week you have someone on to counter his arguments. Well, I, I don't know that he was putting arguments. I think he was talking about the modelling, which of course is not science. Modelling is just tools that can be used, but I think the science is con- incontrovertible at the moment. This person says Australia produces 1% of the world's greenhouse gases. China, 33%. Get on to China. Well... I don't know that we can actually do that, but thanks for the text message. And Mary at Hallett Cove wanted to know if we're likely to have strong winds like last year and should we be netting fruit trees to protect our fruit from the winds? Um, I don't know, that might be something you'd like to comment on, John. I suspect as we move closer to summer, it'll become clearer as to where the, where the, uh, the key weather patterns are and uh, certainly the temperatures will be bringing in very warm temperatures in from the north, uh, the centre of Australia, and blowing over South Australia. The extent of the winds and the strength of the wind depends very much with a number of other little patterns that go around uh, uh, what's happening in the El Nino. So we'll certainly keep an eye on that one. We will do that indeed. I think we've got him on, on the line now. Hermes, an organic gardening expert, joins us very regularly on Talkback Gardening. Tim, you're very much aware of climate change. You've given some brilliant uh, uh, discussions and papers at different forms as chairman of, the, of NASA, the National Association for Sustainable Agriculture. But you're also a very, very keen gardener and thought we might like to take a look at what we can do now. Keeping in mind that Darren was saying that what happened in United States and Europe is what we're going to receive on a regular basis by 2050. Rather than comment on that, let's take a look at right now. What do we need to do right now if we're going to have a hot, hot summer to be able to get through? Thanks, uh, John. Uh, Look, I guess uh, we need to think about um, getting as much water into our soils as we can and storing it there. So, so that's about how we manage the surface of the water, of the soil, so we can get infiltration, and uh, if we can increase our organic matter levels in the soil, that'll help us to store some water ready for uh, the the hot summer, and to moderate temperatures uh, somewhat a little bit in those soils, and uh, and then the use of uh, mulch and. Uh, and I guess also clever watering to ensure that whatever water we put on those soils is, is useful. Well, let's drill down into organic matter. You're talking about putting organic matter on the surface as a mulch and putting organic matter into the soil, presumably as compost. Uh, the, the effect of mulch, where you put the mulch on the soil, what is the benefit of putting mulch on the soil in terms of, of uh, mitigating uh, the effect of high temperatures? Well, uh, we, if we protect the so- soil from uh, the, uh, the, the direct impact of the sun, we can certainly modify its temperatures. We might want to not start doing that too early because, in fact, uh, you know, to get early establishment of seeds, you need those soils to be warm. But as we move into January and February, we can find those soil temperatures are uh, too hot for um, root growth. Um, and uh, and a little bit of mulch over the top will help to modify that. Of course, if you use organic mulches, which is what I advocate, you're also just slowly and gradually 
feeding that organic matter down into the soil as well. Tim, you mentioned don't put the mulch on too early. For It's important to get the, the warmth into the soil before we get growing. But uh, let's also look at mulch. Can we have too much mulch? Absolutely, you can have too much mulch. Um, some plants, like a tomato or corn plant or maybe a potato, can't really be over mulched. They like to have uh, a deep mulch and they'll root into the mulch. But if you're, for instance, growing carrots or something like that, I will start with a very thin layer of mulch. And then as the carrot grows up into a little canopy, I can increase the depth of that. Too much mulch, and especially some materials, say like pea straw, those sorts of things, if we get a, a, a little bit of rain over summer, most of that rain will be absorbed into the mulch itself and won't necessarily get down to the root zone. So you need to think about a mulch that is uh, not uh, uh, too deep to inhibit. So, um, so, so what, what kind of depth would you put on, say, for pea straw, uh, which is, uh, breaks down fairly fine, and what depth would you put on, say, uh, uh, a pine mulch, which is a bit more chunky? Okay, uh, well, look, the, 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 um, the straw mulches, um, I, I like the straw mulch, but often I'll use it as a surface layer over the top of, say, a compost or a compost type of mulch to, uh, to actually protect that uh, mulch. And you only need to use, you know, a, a two-and-a-half-centimetre layer and you've got really quite good protection against uh, summer heat. Tim, on the text line, we're getting a question from Debbie in Mount Lofty saying, what type of mulch do you recommend for high bushfire areas? Um, she says, I'm renovating a large overgrown garden in the Adelaide Hills with limited access to water. The garden hose isn't particularly long. We'll probably need to install a dripper system. Well, we'll get, get a good hose system, I would say, straight up, Debbie. But uh, what sort of mulch would you recommend? Okay, it's, very, it's hard to, to know without looking at the garden, but one thing I can say is, is certainly get rid of hard surfaces where you can. So, you know, for, for garden paths and things like that, if you're looking at gravel, I mean, that's certainly going to resist some fire. And, um, and, and a, a bit of bark is going to be, for instance, less susceptible to burning and it will smoulder rather than um, burn like a, a mulch that contains, you know, potentially straw and paper, that sort of thing. Tim, what's so, your thought on using a ground cover plant as a mulch, uh, particularly in, in a fire uh, area? It's absolutely the very best way. Um, you know, remember that if you have mulch, firstly, you're continuously putting organic matter into the soil at depth as the roots die, for instance, and then the roots themselves, this is what we spoke about last time, how the roots themselves are conditioning the soil. It's preparing, they're, they're creating the conditions in the soil for the good biology to grow. So um, that opens up the soil structure and allows you to get a, 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 you know, a half-inch rain into the soil rather than lying on the surface and rolling off. The important thing is to have that mulch fairly close, so living mulch or ground cover growing quite close to the ground. Clearly, if you've got grasses and they're, you know, mid-calf high or higher, they're going to use a lot of water. But if you're mowing them, and during the summer, you should have the lawnmower on a high setting. But if you're keeping them at that depth, you know, ankle depth, 
or choosing something like a you know a native ground cover which is flowering uh, that stays really quite close to the ground it adds a little bit of color encourages the pollinators and it actually preserves the soil but you know it's you're not competing with moisture if you keep that mulch low to the ground okay and so that's the very best system mulching i think yeah. is well and truly covered don't put it on too early don't put it on too thick and uh, take on board what uh, tim is suggesting let's look at uh, very briefly, putting organic matter into the soil in, in terms of compost. Uh, many people are going to be putting organic matter into their soil, getting ready for tomatoes. What's the volume? Can you put on too much compost? And what's the ratio between, say, good compost and, and uh, uh, the rest of the garden soil? It's pretty hard to put on too much compost if it's a good finished compost. And most of us are limited by budget. So budget is going to ensure that we don't overdo it, really. Underneath the tomato plant, we can put in quite a bit of compost. You know, you can put in a couple of trowel loads of compost under a tomato plant and dig it in deep, and that will be absolutely fine. As for the rest of compost, uh, it doesn't need to be dug in that deep. If you tickle it into the soil with a little rake or a tool like that, uh, that's often adequate, and you don't need to, to dig it in deep except perhaps right underneath the tomato plant you could put a, a couple of handfuls yeah our guest is tim marshall uh, organic gardener and we're going to run out of time tim so we haven't even looked at watering and in particular shading seeing you're coming into south australia and you'll be a resident of south australia in the near future uh, perhaps we can continue the discussion uh, as we approach summer but uh, many thanks for your contribution this morning tim uh, it's greatly valued Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Tim Marshall, our Organic Gardening Authority, joins us regularly on Talk Back Gardening. Thanks very much for joining us this morning. And uh, thank you for your texts. This texter says, High-hedged old tree field gardens are cool air havens for flora and fauna and us. Mary says, For goodness sake, plant trees and stop cutting them down. Uh, and on the issue of a pea straw, quite um, unexpectedly, and says, or expectedly I meant to say, uh, the new season's pea straw, is it going to be free of snails? And Brad also says, let's hope it doesn't have snails and we'll pick that up again uh, in the future, won't we, John, that particular Yes, we're issue. looking at uh, snails and, and the contamination of pea straw in a fair amount of detail. And once I've done my homework, we can come back uh, hopefully with some good uh, technical people about uh, what we can do and what's needed to do to make sure that when you do buy your pea straw, you're not buying snails, snails well. <laughs> with it, exactly. And this text says, don't clear fell old garden habitats. We're coming to your Talkback Gardening calls next. Call in on 1300 222 Don't forget, I've still got two August Gardening Australia magazines with a beautiful citrus on the cover to give away as well. It's 19 to 10. <laughs> This is Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. 1300 891 is the number you'll need that for our magazine giveaway this morning. Benji is in Tusmore. Now, Benji, you've got lots of weeds like me, but you've got a small suburban orchard going. Uh, yes, yeah. Got it. So he's about four years old. i uh, got some uh, stone fruit and some citrus and also a couple of pistachios haven't quite flowered yet, but uh, I, I, when I first put them in, I had a bunch of, of 
pumpkins growing up, and I had this huge pumpkin patch that the kids love. Um, not the pumpkins, but they love looking at them. Uh, and now I've cleared all the weeds. So every every year, lots of weeds grow up. I clear them all. Uh, I was just listening to Tim before about maybe putting a ground cover. I'm just wondering, is there something that I could put under under fruit trees that would uh, like would, wouldn't compete with the fruit? Uh, and would also just keep the keep it nice in the summertime, but also look good and stop all the weeds growing up. Uh, well, using a ground cover is uh, an option, uh, providing uh, access to water is not uh, a limiting factor. You've got plenty of water and happy to use a little bit of extra water. I- yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got it's it's all irrigated quite well. Okay, well, yeah, I'd be suggesting that uh, you look at using ground covers, but yeah. be careful with the planting. Come out to where the drip ring is of the tree, and if you put your uh, uh, and in fact come out uh, maybe a half a meter beyond the drip ring, and put okay. a row of uh, of ground covers around the tree so that the ground covers grow into and underneath the canopy of the tree so uh, that if they're out if their root system is out away from uh, the main root system of your fruit trees uh, you get the least amount of competition and it then comes down to your choice for uh, a ground cover myoporum is probably uh, uh, top of the list it's just a flat a kind of a plant and it runs and it'll spread each little myoporum will do a square meter probably even more about that and having a, a ring of those would be very very good um, it might sound strange but there is a ground cover version of the star jasmine star oh, jasmine yeah. and yeah. Uh, in fact i'm about to put 35 of them in my front <laughs> garden uh, i've done away with the garden and uh, it's going to be just uh, uh, a ground cover of star jasmine and they are just green leaves most of the year some nice perfume flowers in springtime but that also would be uh, just one suggestion if you go to a good garden center i'm sure they'll give you a number of other different options but that concept of using ground covers under your fruit trees is quite reasonable and pumpkins, you wouldn't you wouldn't go the pumpkins again? Oh no, no, you need grass. something. I'm good at uh, grass. Yeah, whatever you do, the ground cover needs to be a, a, a close canopy, have uh, uh, lots of uh, leaves and and matted together, uh, and it, to, to get the effect of, of your ground cover uh, to suppress your mm-hmm. weeds. What you got to do is cut out the light from reaching the topsoil. If the light can percolate through your ground cover, uh, it'll germinate the weeds and the weeds will come up through the ground cover. And they love hiding underneath ground cover. I can tell you that, Benji, because I've got a lot in That's my right. garden yeah. doing it, just it, that. It, it, it's, it's just extra work. So I think that uh, you know, if you're prepared to do that, that's a good thing. But getting rid of your weed seed, I would say uh, uh, do nothing. Uh, let the weeds grow, as many weeds as possible to grow, and then when they're only very, very small little seedlings, uh, burn them off with something like a, a, a knockdown weedicide. And I think if you do that, um, let them grow, burn them off, let them grow again, burn them off. You reduce the weed seed bank near the surface and then put... Uh, so this takes you into probably November uh, when you plant your ground covers and get them established and uh, eventually should overcome your, your weed problem. 
Good luck, Benji. Mary from Cuddly Creek says to you that oregano makes a great ground cover in her orchard. Let's go to Marion now. Mal, you can't get winter oils for your roses. What's going on? Morning, Deb. Morning, John. I don't know. Winter roses, hardware places, they don't know about it. They can't get it. And I thought, I'd better ring you to see if Echo Oil have sold me. Is that any good? Or can I mix it with something or what? I don't know. What are you trying to control? Uh, 80 roses I've just finished pruning. Yes. Um, you should be able to buy. Uh, uh, what are you asking for? A winter oil or a, a, a white oil? oil? Sorry? No, a a winter oil. A winter oil, yep. Um, they sold me echo oil. No, that, there's two different types of oils. There's a, a, a refined oil, that's your summer oil, eco oil or pest oil, and that will give you uh, uh, control. You could use that and it would work, but not nearly as effectively if you sprayed your roses before they've come out into leaf, um, and you can use a white oil. If you ask for a winter oil... Um, there is about there's five or six different uh, brands of it, um, and what concerns me is that uh, some of them are actually got a white oil, and it's sold for controlling uh, problems on citrus, which is evergreen. But it's only half the concentration. So if you're using a white oil, <laughs> you need to read the directions very, very carefully and look at the concentration of the oil. And in some, it's only got a, a, a small concentration of the material uh, that, that causes uh, the, the, the control. And uh, so, yeah. I but, I mean, Mal's problem is he's going to hardware stores and they're not, they're not even knowing what winter oils are. So probably good to go to a garden store if you can and see if you can get it there. Yeah, yes, most garden, oh, all garden centres, I'm sure, would tell you exactly what is a, a winter oil. If you go onto your website and, and put in winter oil, white oil, and uh, ask for brands uh, of, of winter oil and white oil and see what comes up, and they'll come up with the, the brand name and if you go into your store then and say, I want this particular brand this of first, this particular yeah. product. So there, Mal, you might need to do some research. Or China, a nursery might help you out because you've got a lot of roses there in your garden by the sounds of things. Mark is in Albert Park, wants to prune your fig tree. Hi, Mark. Um, I'm just trying to organise what, what was going on with my phone. <laughs> okay, well, um, what's, you, you just need to prune your fig tree, Mark. Yes, have you got me there now? We have. Sorry, guys, sorry. I'm out gardening. I've been out here in the backyard for hours. It's beautiful. All right. Okay. You prune, so you've got a prune. Is it a big old tree or just a... It old... is, John. It's a massive tree. It's five metres high. It's huge canopy. I've battled uh, scale for the last two years. Um, it's no leaves, and I'm going to spray it with that heavy winter pest oil anytime soon. Okay, well, but that's this... good. Uh, prune it, and you can prune it as hard as you like. Just bear in mind that figs produce their fruit on new wood. So where you cut it, you'll get a new growth, and on that new growth, you'll get fruit, or you should get fruit. Um, and so I would be looking at an old tree and saying uh, it needs to be reduced in size, but probably more important, you need to reduce the canopy, the intensity or, 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 of the, or the thickness of the canopy. Yes. Um, so cut out as many of the uh, inner branches as you possibly can. Okay. Um, because if you, and if you do that, if you thin it out, so have uh, less branches and then you can short them to whatever length that you think is, is acceptable from a looking point of view, um, that opens up the canopy 
and that will significantly reduce your scale problem. The scale on figs thrive on humidity, and it's when people do nothing and they just have this uh, uh, very dense canopy of leaves, it becomes very humid in there, and the scale love it. If you reduce the canopy, get more air flowing through the tree, you'll reduce the likelihood of scale or the intensity of the scale problem very significantly. You've just confirmed what I was thinking. So I appreciate that, mate. I'm looking at it now. I'm, I've got it. I can just see exactly where I want to start, and it's all good. Oh, great, Mark. Well, you've been a few hours in the garden. Good luck with the rest of the day. Thanks for calling in. I love you both. See you. Oh, thanks, Mark. What a sweet thing to say. Uh, we have got more of your talkback gardening calls coming up, but, John, I have to say lots of people on the text line saying that they have asked at various places for winter oils and have been greeted with, you know, complete... Uh, blank faces um, and people don't know what it is so I think what you said is right go online first work out what product you want and by whom and then go and ask for yes. it by name well three that come to mind Yates have uh, a, a white oil and they're one of the offenders that they look at the concentration because Yates have a, 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 a an unconcentrated one and a concentrated one or maybe they don't even have the concentrated one now that, so the, the uh, concentration is important Yates have one Rich Grow have one you'll find those mainly in garden in uh, chain stores and there's another one Searles a company from Queensland have got a, an excellent range of uh, protective chemicals and they all those three uh, I do have I'm sure and uh, if you go to the counter and say look uh, can I've been told you can have this mm. to get them to get off their proverbials and give you some service. Yes, great. Well, look, if you have not won anything from ABC Radio Adelaide in the last month and you'd like to win a copy of the August Gardening Australia magazine, ABC Gardening Australia magazine, ring now on 1300 891 and answer this question. What is on the front cover? This is Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Let's go to, uh, are we going to TEPCO? Brent, good morning yes, to you. here I am. John, apples, um, Granny Smith, Pink Lady and Sundowner. They're spoiled with a grey to black spot or irregular size. You can peel the skin off and it hasn't actually affected the flesh. Yes. Where's this? It's, I didn't have it last year on the apples. Uh, what is it? It's black spot. It's a fungus, and uh, it's the Achilles heel of apple and pear growers, apples in particular. And uh, many years ago, there weren't too many. Uh, oh, I won't go down there. Getting the right fungicide was a problem. It's not a problem anymore. Um, it's a bit like the curl leaf story. You need to get your timing right and putting on a protective spray just as the, before the buds open. It's not uh, recommended, uh, uh, or it's not. It, 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 it's, it's valuable, putting on your, uh, a fungicide before the buds burst. And then once the blossom has faded, it'll come out, it'll blossom, the blossoms will fade, uh, putting on a protective spray at that particular stage. And it's the, probably the spray after uh, f blossom fall and uh, 
depending on the weather conditions, then putting on two fungicides, one as the bud, uh, the, the flowers fade and one about two weeks later, should be able to give you protection from that particular problem. Liquid copper, John? A liquid copper would be ideal. Right. Thanks very much. I didn't think of black spot. Okay. Well, thanks, Brent. Glad that you called in. Lovely to talk with you. Uh, congratulations to Margaret in Seaford and Maureen in Murray Bridge, who correctly answered that citrus, oranges and lemons, in fact, are on the front cover of the ABC Gardening Australia magazine this month. Ian is in Moana. Now, Ian, your lawn's being invaded by buffalo grass. Good morning. <laughs> Hi, Deb. Yes, it is. Um, John, and uh, John, I know you don't... Um put any effort into a lawn in your own garden but I hope you're not being with mine um, which is um, as Deb says, so it's a Santana lawn and it's being invaded by um, common buffalo you know, the thing that our parents had as the yes. only grass they had however many years ago um, and before, at the beginning of winter I you know, got out there and I tried to dig it out and I pulled the runners and did all of that sort of thing and thought I might have been winning the battle but here we are at the beginning of August and it's worse. I mean, the buffalo's starting to win. So um, I guess my question is, um, you know, ideally there's some low-effort chemical response here that I can win the battle with, or do I really just need to keep digging it out, or maybe the end game is lift the whole lawn and start again? I smile when you say you're trying to get rid of the buffalo. Uh, normally it's uh, things invading the it's buffalo, buffalo and getting <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> the, the invaders out. Uh, listen, you need to go to a lawn specialist. There are chemicals which are available, but you need to make sure you've got the right one. And I'm not, not prepared to, to mention those on air because people will get the wrong one and, and burn off the whole lawn. Um, sure. Uh, buffalo, I mean, if you take a look at uh, your control, you've got your MCPAs and bromoxynols and, and, and chemicals like that, and you'll, <laughs> you'll see on it there, uh, don't use it on bromox, don't use it on buffalo because it's yep. sensitive to buffalo. Now, if you use one of those chemicals, it'll knock the buffalo back without killing it. But it, there are systemic uh, chemicals uh, and, and specific chemicals which will control buffalo and have minimum effect on your lawn grass. But that's not available from the general garden centre or hardware store. You need to go to a lawn specialist. Sure, sure. So it looks, and the other thing I would say is get John Lamb's uh, Good Gardening newsletter because you often reference Stephen Palm's blog there, who is just incredible. On well, Stephen Palm is probably one of our top consultants, lawn mm. consultants, and, uh, and Les Stephen has yeah, got an incredible knowledge as to uh, which chemical you can use effectively. But there are other lawn specialists besides uh, the one that Stephen. Uh, works with. Yes, so Ian, good luck with that. Thank you so much for calling in. John, we're just about out of time. Lots of people wanting to know what you're doing with so many star jasmine plants. Can you give us a quick rundown or we don't have time? Oh yes, yes. Um, I, I've, I've had about three or four different types of gardens in the front in about four years and my wife is sick and tired of it. She sort of said, righto John, you've got the back garden, I've got the front. And she said, what I want is just wall-to-wall -wall ground cover plants. And that's what she's going to get. And the advice I got from a top landscaper <laughs> was, uh, why don't you try uh, uh, your uh, 
uh, star jasmines, yeah. uh, and there was a, a ground cover version of that flat mat. And so, 35 uh, plants are sitting there, and in the next few weeks, they'll be in the ground. And uh, I suspect that once the ground covers are there, there'll be large and probably very, very expensive urns <laughs> placed <laughs> strategically amongst them or around them. <laughs> Sounds but, lovely, John. Uh, yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, I'm doing what I was told. <laughs> Well, look, we've covered a lot of ground this morning, a lot to do in the garden this weekend. Uh, thanks as always, John. Yes, until next week, I'll say good gardening.